Once, a pastor was asked, how do you understand death for the Christian? He thought for a minute, and he responded by telling this story. He said, well, it's like this. There once was a peasant, and the peasant had some things to take care of in another village. And so the next morning, he said to his wife that he had to travel to this particular village to do his business. He would try to be back before nightfall. It was at this point that his little son said, Father, can I go with you? And of course, any father would be thrilled to take the son along for the day. So he said, of course, he grasped his little hand and off they went. As they walked, they came to a canyon and a river. And the river was swollen because of recent rains and the waters had washed away the bridge. The only thing that was left were the pilings that stuck up, uh, that held the bridge up. And it looked very, very uh, scary, and the little boy said to his dad, Dad, we'll never get across. Uh, it was so rapid and so scary. The father said, No, 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 son, we'll make it. I'll be very careful. I'll hold on to you very tightly, and we'll get across. And grasping the little boy by the wrist, he began to make his way from piling to piling, sometimes holding the little boy over the torrent until they could get to the next piling, little scary endeavor, but they made it, they got across, and then they headed towards their time of business. And they went to the village, they did their little business there, and when they were finished, they started home. But as often is the case uh, with business, it took longer than expected, and it was then now already dark when they started their return trip. This particular night, though, it was a little bit more dark because there was a cloudy sky, no moon, no stars, so in that deep darkness, as he began to walk back towards the canyon, he heard his little boy start to cry. And he looked down at his son, and he said, what's wrong, son? And he said, father, we made it across the river in the light, but we'll never make it in the dark. Never. Well, without saying a word, the father reached down, picked up and scooped up his son, pressed him to his chest, and within about three minutes the little boy was fast asleep. The next thing the little boy knew, he woke up. He woke up, he found himself in his own house, in his own room, in his own bed, sunshine screaming through the window, his father standing in the doorway smiling, and he was home. And that, the pastor said to the parishioner, is what death is like for the Christian. What you fear, you never experience. You simply wake up, and you're home. That's the experience of death for the believer. But let me tell you about the greatest preacher that I know. You've all heard of him. He's a preacher of the old school, and he speaks boldly as ever, and is very, very not popular. The world is his parish. He speaks every language, and he speaks at every part of the globe. He visits the poor, he calls on the rich, he preaches to people of every religion and people of no religion. And the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings that no other preacher can stir in people's hearts. He can bring tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments are so strong, no one's able to refute them, and there is no heart that remains unmoved by the force of his appeal. His message always shatters life. Most people hate him and everybody seems to fear him. 
His name is Death. He's a bold preacher. He preaches a sermon we don't want to hear, but we must hear. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday, every single one of us here will hear his message firsthand. Now I get it. You're here today to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, and very few people want to hear about death. And I know if you were invited to go to a funeral or go to a party on the very same day, 99% of you would choose the party, right? After all, a party, you can have some fun, you can enjoy some laughs, be with people. At a funeral, there's only tears, burdens, and some painful uneasiness of mind and heart. And yet, the wisest man who ever lived, his name was King Solomon, said that a funeral is a better choice. You say, why would he say that? Well, take a look at your outline. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, he tells you why. He says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of what? Feasting. Because as that is the end of every man, every woman, and the living, what? Take it to heart. You need to not only think about the door of death, but you need to consider what's awaiting you on the other side. Death is the gate that you pass through to eternal life. Death is that gate, the doorway for our eternity. And today we will expose God's never wrong word on death and the judgments to follow. Next week will be a celebration of Dirt Day, and then the following two weeks after that, we will describe the only two eternal destinations, hell and then heaven. Death is not the most pleasant of subjects, for sure. People do not want to think about it because it raises fears and it brings uneasiness. But the Bible is very clear, very pointed. The Bible minces no words. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die, how often? Once. And then after this comes what? Say it. Judgment. The Spirit of God has made it also clear to every human heart. The Bible tells us unsaved and saved know that there is life after death. And that afterlife, according to the Scriptures, may not be pleasant. Since after death there will be certain judgment. Most of you and most people on the planet prefer to suppress any thinking about the inevitability and the nearness of death. Our culture has removed it from practical aspects of our lives. Uh, in, you know, within 150 years, instead of preparing the body yourself, now there are funeral homes that take care of all of that. We are isolated, removed from that. They're shielded from witnessing the dead. Interesting enough, and I know I'm a little bit strange, but I choose to talk about death all the time. I always have. Sometimes humorously, sometimes personally, always pointedly. I'll say, listen, I'm going on a plane. If it crashes and dies, I'm going to be much happier than you. I'll say, listen, if I croak, have a party. Make it a big one. Celebrate, because your celebration ain't going to come close to what I'm celebrating. 
Understand, I know I have a warped sense of humor. And I've been joking a little bit about dying before we get on the property. I get it. You know, I don't think Satan's going to argue over my body. But just take my ashes and just kind of spread them out over Wildemar and I'll be happy. You know what I'm saying? Because understand, there's something else that's driving my comments. We just don't talk enough about eternity. We just don't think enough about eternity. And understand, this life, this life that we're living right now is a blip on the radar compared to forever in heaven or forever in hell. The only way to live this life fully and biblically and for God's glory is to live knowing that this life is temporary. You maybe get, maybe you get 60 years. Maybe 70. Maybe 80. Joan, maybe 90. Huh? I mean, and many, many others. Much quicker. Understand, I'm confident that you're not surprised that unbelievers are ready to accept any thinking, any religion, any philosophy, any idea that promises some sort of afterlife tranquility and peace and happiness after death that doesn't involve judgment, that doesn't involve accountability to the judge of the universe, Jesus Christ, for their life. Every kid, and I have to add every clown, that somehow dies in an accident or dies on the operating table and then somehow miraculously comes back to life, writes a book and it becomes a bestseller. False teachers, false preachers, weak preachers continually assure people saying, since God is a God of love that somehow everyone will eventually be saved and no one will suffer in a place of torment. That is not what the Bible clearly teaches. It is not. And since God's Word has authority over our experiences, can you say amen to that? Does God's Word have authority over your experiences? It does. Over your thinking, over your ideas, over anybody's ideas, any other thinking, we need to hear what the Scriptures have to say about death and about judgment. What does God say in His perfect Word? I'm hoping that today will be a resource for you, not just today, but in future times when you're facing this reality with family or friends who've died. I really do. We all will face the death of a loved one. We all will face, if we are not raptured, our own death. Now, if you're new with us, we are in the midst of a series called What is to Come? It is a study of eschatology. It was driven by our study of Second Peter. We got in there talking about the second coming of Christ, and, and it left us with so many questions that were unanswered. We thought we would do eight weeks on the study of that. We normally go through books of the Bible. We will go through books of the Bible this summer. We call them the postcard epistles that are found in the New Testament. And then we will get to the book of James and work our way verse by verse, word by word, through that epistle. But understand, we need to understand what is to come. And what is to come that we're all facing at some point, if we're not raptured, we are going to die. So number one in your outline, what is the biblical view of death? What is the biblical view of death? Well, the right view, the, the true view. Well, though death is both real and inevitable, it is unnatural. It is unnatural. When God created the heavens and the earth, death was not a part of it. Did you get that? At the very beginning. That's why death will finally be conquered according to 1 Corinthians 15, 26. And death will be banished from the new creation, the new heaven, the earth, new earth. John says in Revelation 20, verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. They will not exist. They did not exist at the very beginning. 
when someone dies, when you go through a crisis and you don't know what to say, you can tell them with confidence, this was not God's original intention. This was not God's original intention for mankind. It was sin that created death, did it not? It was. And the Bible does speak of three different kinds of death. First, spiritual death, which is separation to uh, God, a separation of a created being from their creator. Spiritual death. It talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Secondly, there's eternal death. Eternal death, which is the final permanent separation of an unsaved person from God. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 speaks of the second death. It is, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And then thirdly, there's physical death, which is the separation of the immaterial part of you from your material physical body. It's actually talked about in the scripture, that very moment when the immaterial part of you departs. It says it in Genesis chapter 35, verses 18 and 19, speaking of Rachel's death, it came about as her soul was departing as her immaterial part of her being is departing sometimes soul and spirit used simultaneously or for one another she died she named him ben onai but his father called him benjamin so rachel died and was buried most americans believe there is life after death and less people actually know what happens when they die so let's clarify maybe you've noticed the similarities in all the different kinds of death that I just showed you that are listed in the scripture, death means, you want to write this down as a simple definition, death means separation. It means separation. Death does not mean annihilation. It does not mean destruction or ceasing to exist. It is a separation. When this separation occurs, the body, your physical being, falls asleep and is buried in the ground. But the immaterial part of you immediately goes to the one of two places depending on your relationship to Jesus Christ. Immediately, your immaterial part. The scriptures actually give many clear examples of physical death being the separation of your immaterial spirit, your internal soul, from your physical body. When Stephen was being stoned in the book of Acts, he looked to heaven and he prayed, Lord, receive my spirit. My immaterial being. Rachel, when she died, which we just looked at, during her childbirth, her immaterial soul was in the very act of departing. And James teaches, at physical death, there is a separation of the body from the spirit. James chapter 2, verse 26, look at it. For just as the body without the spirit is what? Dead. Say it with me now. So also faith without works is what? Dead. The separation element. In the Bible, the Bible life is not only merely viewed as existence but life is also viewed as well-being and death therefore is the loss also of well-being but never the cessation of being never so as believers then how can you and i as believers christians born again understand death well number two in your outline what is the biblical understanding of death for the believer well, after the death of the believer and before his or her resurrection, he or she exists in an intermediate state. You read theologies, they'll talk about an intermediate state. It means after your death, but before you get your glorified body. 
The scriptures don't give us a great deal of information about this particular time and condition. But the reason is because the resurrection, that is our hope. That's our hope. The bodily resurrection is when believers, you and I, will be complete and we will be equipped for all eternity. But this intermediate state, the writers of scriptures do give us a little bit of clarity of what happens to a believer at death right now. What happens when you, or those you love, die? Well, first in your outline, believers are given the guarantee that nothing, including death, will ever separate you from your Lord Jesus Christ. Take a look at Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither what? Death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of you had horrible childhoods. Some of you were abandoned by family. You were abandoned by one parent or both parents at some point in your life. Uh, some of you have been through horrific kind of childhoods where you had no one supporting you. And so when you think about this whole process, you think about being abandoned, being alone. But if you're a believer, understand God responds completely different. You can never be separated from God's incredible love for you. Never. He just said it. Neither death nor life can separate you from the love of God. Secondly, you never need to fear death because our Lord Jesus, who has already gone through the door of death, He's already died once, is with us. He's with us. You can be assured that Jesus will not abandon you, even for a moment at the time of your physical death. In fact, He guarantees it in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. He says, I will never desert you, and nor will I ever, what? Forsake you. I'll never do it. Christ has been victorious over death, and in the future, He will destroy death. The Bible even describes death for Christians in terms that are not frightening. Like the term sleep. The Bible describes this only for a believer, the death for a believer, as non-frightening as sleep. So thirdly, believers are also assured that death brings you immediately into the presence of Christ. Into the presence of Christ. Every one of you are either in your physical body right now, living on earth, or you have left your material body and have gone into Christ's presence. There is no third option. You're either here in your physical body, or you basically have gone into the presence of Christ. There is no purgatory. There is no soul sleep. The Apostle Paul could not have been more clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-8. through 8. Take a look at it. He says, Being always of courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are what? Okay, so we're physically absent from the Lord while we're home in the body. Verse 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. And we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body means to be what? At home with the Lord. Don't you love that? You should know that verse. You keep that one. At the moment of your death, Christian, and by the way, I'm crazy enough to look up what, what are the most common ways for people to die right now. Are you ready? Cancer, heart attack, accident, stroke, and old age. What are the least ways people can die? Listen, just be careful of these, all right? Lawnmower. Be careful. Skateboard. Be careful. Falling from a tree. And I'm wondering, why are you up in a tree? And then the most dangerous of all, please, please remember this, falling out of bed. Okay, so that's 
That's what the, uh, the internet tells us, and that's what the statistics tell us. But Paul also says, at the moment of your death, Christian, when your immaterial spirit leaves the sphere of existence, you immediately enter the presence of the Lord. There is no intermediate state of unconsciousness, nor some sort of purgatory. He simply says, as he continues to minister at home, in this body, he is away from his true home, in the presence of Christ. But the moment he leaves this temporary home on earth, he'll be in his permanent home in heaven with Christ. And he says it again, multiple ways in the New Testament. He makes it that transition clear in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. You know it. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, in this life, this will mean fruitful labor for me, for I do not know what to choose. I'm, I'm schizophrenic. I'm torn both ways. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much what? Better. Do you believe that? Very much better. In comfortable cultures, we don't often think of heaven being very much better. The more uncomfortable our culture gets, the more we realize it's going to be very much better. And Paul longs to be with Christ. He's well aware the Philippians would benefit from his continued ministry on earth, so he still wants to stay out of love for them so that they would come to Christ, they would become like Christ. He continues in that kind of ministry, yet he wants to depart to be with Christ because being with Christ is so much better. And if you're a Christian, you'll be like Paul, you'll be torn. I want to be faithful, but I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to stay for them, but I want to go home and be with Christ. Paul would not have this longing if at death he entered into purgatory. Paul would not have this longing if he thought he was going to lapse into a condition of non-existence, what errant theologians call soul sleep. He was absolutely ecstatic, saying this is very, very much better. At death, the believer immediately enters the presence of Christ in heaven. Period. Some theologians have suggested about that intermediate state that you'll have some sort of temporary body while you're waiting for your resurrected glorified body. They say this because when they read about Moses and Elijah appearing bodily with the unveiled Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, that they must have had some sort of temporary body for believers awaiting the resurrection, which for Christians occurs at the rapture. Now, this is all speculation. There's no proof of this in Scripture at all. But even though the idea of a temporary body before the resurrection is not at all clear in the Bible, what is clear is this. Believers, believers will be present with the Lord at the moment of their death. That is absolutely clear. And Jesus said it this way to the believing thief on the cross next to him. Jesus said to him in Luke chapter 23, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me. Not tomorrow, not the next day, not after soul sleep, not after purgatory. Today you'll be with me where? Paradise. Paradise used three times in the New Testament, a term referring to the place where Christ has manifested his presence and his glory. Paradise. The best place, the home you've never been to, the home where you belong, the home where you are truly, fully, completely at rest. At rest. Even though the intermediate state for the believer will not be as wondrous as the time when you're resurrected in your glorified body, when you enter through the door of death, 
that moment will be a thousand times better, maybe a million times better than this life. We have everything to look forward to. But the people who don't have something to look forward to are those who are not in Christ. That's number three in your outline. What is the biblical understanding of death for the unbeliever, the non-Christian, the unbeliever, the make-believer? What is the biblical understanding? Well, every non-believer also continues in a conscious existence at the time of physical death. But their fate is not a pleasant one. Ultimately, the Bible teaches that they too will receive a universal glorified body in the sense of an eternal body, but it will exist in torment. And all those without Christ, except for infants and those very young, will experience eternal punishment in Hades for now and eternal hell in the lake of fire forever. We know that Hades is the first place of torment, and we know that hell is the final place of torment, because after the final judgment, then Hades itself is thrown into the lake of fire. It's thrown into hell. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, then death and the place Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now some false teachers will actually deny the conscious torment called uh, that will occur in Hades and Sheol because they point out that Hades or Sheol refer to the grave, a hole in the ground, and they add, never, they say, describing eternal punishment. Let me prove that wrong. Because the Bible does teach that Hades and Sheol are places of torment, uh, and that is not true, what they claim. Psalm 9.17 says, the wicked will return to Sheol. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. Here, Sheol is a place prepared for the wicked and does not simply describe the grave, since both righteous and wicked go to the grave. Since everybody who's righteous and everybody who's wicked dies, he's not talking about that. When describing spanking, here's a good one for you parents. Proverbs 23.14 says, You shall strike him, with the rod, and rescue his soul from Sheol. Now, it's obvious no amount of parental discipline will keep a child from the grave, from dying. So the writer is describing eternal punishment. It's also informing you parents, hint, hint, that righteous biblical punishment helps keep your child from eternal punishment. That's what he's saying. Luke 16.23 tells of the rich man who died, and he says, in Hades, he says, he lifted up his eyes, being in what? Torment in Hades, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus, Lazarus in his bosom. His punishment, which followed his death in Hades, is clearly in view here. In fact, our Lord continually describes the death of the unsaved in terms of the suffering that they will immediately endure after their death. Let me say it again. The Lord, our Lord, continually describes the death of the unsaved in terms of the suffering that they will experience and immediately endure after their death. Matthew 5.22 Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Speaking of the city that didn't submit to the Messiah, Matthew 11.23 You Capernaum, you will descend to what? Hades. Taking a direct shot and talking directly to the Pharisees, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Any non-Christian 
Anyone who does not follow Christ, anyone who is not born again, even those who attend church but are not born again, that don't follow Christ, that don't obey Him, when they die, they will immediately go to Hades now. They will ultimately end up later in the lake of fire hell. There is no second chance. In His Word, God lovingly gives a loud and repetitive over and over and over. Jesus speaks about hell more than any other biblical writer. they will immediately, ultimately end up in the lake of fire. And Jesus continues to give a loud and repetitive warning of the terrors that are ahead for those who are not going to repent of their sins and not turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And they will face judgment. And it will be very, very unpleasant. It doesn't matter when you die, you will face judgment. Romans chapter 14 verse 12 reaffirms that. It says, so when each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Leading to point number four. What is the biblical understanding of the coming judgments? What does the Bible teach about these judgments? Well, no matter what time you live, you will face judgment. You will be evaluated. For the Christian, it is for reward. For the non-Christian, it is for punishment. In fact, the first of the judgments is the Bema seat of Christ for believers. The Bema seat judgment for believers. For the Christian, any action, any action of everyday life, which is done for the glory of God, done in the power of the Spirit, is rewardable. Take a look at the description of the Bema judgment in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Take a look at it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the Bema seat. That's the literal rendering in the Greek language, the Bema, judgment. So that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good, which is useful, or bad, which is useless. Bema has to do with the reward platform that's used at the Olympic Games. He's saying this is a reward judgment. You'll be rewarded. Some of you, this, this really gets me. Some of you in this crowd are going to be rewarded for the way you drove. Now, when I see some of you on the freeway, I'm thinking you've lost your reward. But understand the Bible teaches that if you're seeking to glorify God in your driving and you're filled with the Spirit, you'll be rewarded. If you're seeking to glorify God the way you talk to others, and filled with the Spirit, you'll be rewarded. When you're cleaning your house, when you're doing mundane tasks around the house, if you're seeking to glorify God with those mundane tasks, and being filled with the Spirit at the same time, it's His strength, it's His glory, you're rewarded. you understand? It's what's done for Him that matters. It's what's done for Him. If it's done for His glory and in the Spirit's power, you say, Chris, what if I love Jesus and I've really served Him all my life? I've always tried to engage in some sort of ministry. Uh, you know, I, I didn't give what everybody else gives, which is 1.03%, which is typically the national average for conservative churches. I actually gave close to 12%, Chris, and, and I served and whatever. But honestly, let me be honest with you, Chris. I'm telling you, a lot of what I did was for my glory. In fact, a lot of it. And a lot of it was done in my strength. I just kind of rammed through it. I wasn't really dependent upon the Spirit of God. But what happens then? Well, the Bible speaks to that exact scenario. It does. The Corinthians had just experienced a citywide fire. All the wooden buildings had burned, but all the stone, the ones made of marble, etc., all remained standing. All the temples, all the main buildings survived. 
1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 then, Paul applies that to their lives by saying, Now if any man builds on the foundation, the foundation of Christ, with gold, silver, and precious stones, like marble, etc., or wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon remains, it, it survived the fire, the testing, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire, as long as it's based upon, get this, on the foundation in the previous verses of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection. Your hope is in him. This is all built on that foundation. All ministry is accomplished on the foundation of Christ. Through his death, his burial, and resurrection from the dead. It's the gospel. It's our salvation that he's talking about there. It's got to be based in that, that we're already saved. But then each believer, though, if you are a Christian, if you are born again, must be careful how they build on that foundation. Hear me. You need to be careful how you build the foundation that Christ laid in our lives. How you live, how you serve, does matter. Please don't minimize this. The New Testament is filled with these exhortations. It talks about crowns. It talks about rewards. It talks about this very specifically. This judgment will probably occur after the rapture, during the tribulation, when the church, made up of both raptured living saints and resurrected previously dead Christians, will face Christ personally. Each one of us will face Him. Each one will be rewarded for what we've done for Christ through His Spirit for His glory. Everyone. Secondly, the second big judgment is the sheep-goat judgment. This judgment occurs after Christ physically returns as the glorified King of the earth in His second coming right before the thousand-year kingdom that we looked at last week. All people who survive the tribulation will be evaluated by their deeds to determine if they're one of God's sheep or they're an unbelieving goat. It's interesting, Matthew 25, 32 says, and all the nations after Christ returns and everybody gathers and he takes over now, Christ is here, he will be gathered, they all will be gathered before Christ and Christ will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and Christ will evaluate their deeds. Their deeds demonstrate that Christ is through them. Their deeds prove that they've been transformed and born again through him. It's what Christians do. The sheep hear this from Jesus in Matthew 25, 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come, all who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The goats hear this in Matthew 25, 41. And then he also will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Because the sheep did the deeds motivated by a new born-again heart. They were able to be done in the Spirit for the glory of God, but the goats did not do them because they could not do them in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. Matthew 25, 35 says of the sheep, When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I was naked, you gave me clothes. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to me. The goats did none of that. As a result, the thousand-year kingdom begins with only glorified saints who cannot sin. They are now redeemed forever. They help rule this planet with Christ. We looked at that last week. They can never falter. And also it begins with regular Christians. 
Only the sheep go into the kingdom, like you and I, just right now today, like we are. Those regular Christians who can still sin, who can still fail, though they're believing, will have children, offspring, and they'll have generations of offspring. They'll have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren over a thousand years. But that offspring will eventually take a perfect planet, a perfect environment, the Lord's presence, the glorified saints who are ruling, who never make a mistake, who never sin all around, they'll take all that for granted and they will refuse Christ, they will turn away from Christ, they'll rebel under the leadership of Satan when he is released. Christ immediately judges them with fire and then we immediately lead to Revelation chapter 20 verse 9, which is number 3 in your outline, the final judgment, the great white throne judgment. The great white throne. Now there are some who believe all these judgments occur at the same time. That may be a reality. Uh, our best understanding would be that they are distinct. And after a thousand year kingdom and a final rebellion led by Satan, God judges all of humanity from all of time, all of time, all of known history in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, he says, the great and the small standing before the throne. The books were open and another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their what? Their deeds, again their deeds. If anyone's name was not, though, found and written in the book of life, regardless of his deeds, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Judgment is coming for all. The only question is, do your deeds demonstrate that you're a born-again Christian? Or do they demonstrate that you're a self-deceived phony? Faith without works is what? Dead. Christians serve. Christians are involved in service and working and sacrificing. Understand, unless you're raptured, death is coming to every single one of you. I, I, I wish I could point you out right now. It's coming to you. It's coming to you. It's especially coming to you. It's coming to you. Every single one of us is going to die. Unless we're raptured, it is a reality that you and I must face. The issue is, no matter what, you will be judged. And the only question is, what kind of judgment will you face? Will it be a judgment that already occurred on Jesus Christ on your behalf? Or will it be a judgment that falls upon you as you experience the wrath of God for all eternity in eternal torment? It's up to you. You know, death and suffering, some of the trials that some of you are currently experiencing right now, I had some people in, in the first hour even overwhelmed, overwhelmed by some of the heartache and death and just incredible difficulty of living on this planet. Some of you are going through that. So in light of that, letter A in your outline, the Lord Jesus is with you today in the midst of your tragedy and sorrow. He's with you today. You will all deal with tragedy in the, this life. And you're going to need hope. Not temporary hope. Not hope that, that is you know, some sort of numbing. Some cheap hope uh, that, that basically doesn't last. It has no meaning. Uh, but, but not short term, but solid. A hope that actually remains with you. There are a lot of empty answers today. And all they do is numb the pain. They, all they do is provide temporary solutions. But they're all they are is just temporary numbing. You need a hope 
that truly endures. You also need a hope that those aren't going to fly away. That's right. But understand, say, where would I go to learn about that kind of hope? Well, you can go to Jeremiah the prophet. Because Jeremiah went through a tragedy that rivals any tragedy that you've ever seen in your entire life. His whole life, his whole latter aspect of his ministry was to the city of Jerusalem and they dissed him. They didn't listen to him. They rejected him. And finally, it was that God brought about judgment upon Jerusalem. And, and basically the city and the temple and everything was just actually torn to shreds. And there was nothing left. People were taken away in slavery. People fled for their lives and they became, you know, those who are out and, and uh, never to return to Jerusalem. Some were made into slaves. And in the midst of that kind of situation... Here's what Jeremiah wrote in the midst of that tragedy. It's a book that he wrote, apart from the book of Jeremiah, called Lamentations. And right in the middle, as he's lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem, he says this in Lamentations 3, verse 21. Look at it. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have what? I have hope because I'm remembering this. What are you remembering, Jeremiah? Verse 22. The Lord's loving kindness never what? Never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. And this is where we actually get the hymn. Great is thy, what? Faithfulness. Despite this heart-wrenching tragedy, Jeremiah could write that his hope came from knowing that God is always there. That his mercies are always new every morning. And that each day was a new chance to experience God's faithfulness. So no matter what you're going through, I want you to off, I want to offer you that hope, reminding you of God's faithfulness. God is faithful. Can I hear an amen to that? His mercies are new every morning. I don't know, whether you feel like it or not, they're new every morning. His love is shed abroad in our hearts. He will never abandon you. He'll never forsake you. And though He puts you through sometimes some difficult times, there is no reason to fear. Because Christ is all wise and therefore all your tragedy, Christian, is for your good and his glory. I've seen it. Maybe you have. Maybe an illustration of his care for you can be seen on a human level. You've seen that husband and wife where the wife is so debilitated and yet the husband is healthy and so he cares for her. And people say as they watch them, no one can care for mom like dad. Or it's reversed. He's in the chair. She's caring for him. And and, and everyone will say, no one can care for mom like dad can. Friends, multiply that by a thousand and you have the care of Christ for you. No one can care for his children like our Heavenly Father. Can I hear an amen to that? It's true. No matter what you're going through, his care will be manifest. You need to not respond to emotion. You need to respond to the truth of that and trust that he will come and minister to you. No one can fill your difficult life with joy and peace and contentment and happiness like Christ. He proved it by His willingness to take your eternal torment for your sin upon Himself on the cross. He didn't have to do that. In fact, it is the opposite of who He is. Holiness took on sin. Absolute perfection took on your dirt and filth and died suffering under the weight of what you deserve for all eternity. He already proved His love multiple times to you. And for you, through His Spirit, He will never leave you. 
He will never forsake you. You can trust Him through tragedy. Letter B. Deeds of service and sacrifice today really do matter for eternity. This is a motivation for those of you who do know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. You should be motivated. The born-again heart wants to follow Christ, wants to obey His Word, wants to interconnect with Christian, wants to disciple, wants to care for the hurting, wants to share the gospel, wants to love the new person, wants to basically know God's will through God's Word, and we want others to know God's will through God's Word. Yes, believers will struggle with fear. Yes, we'll fail. But we really want to live for Him, and it will begin to show in the way that we deed, in the way that we give, in the way that we live our life, in the way that we serve, and all those things will basically start to match that new heart that He's given us. That's true. Deeds of service, giving sacrificial, faithful ministry, all really do matter. You noticed all three judgments were according to deeds. And those deeds were either motivated by a born-again heart or by a lost heart. And the only way that anything could ever please Him would be that it would be because of His righteousness that somehow extends through us because of our salvation in Christ and His Spirit for His glory. You know, don't find yourself going, I, I, I've got nothing to offer you, Lord. We should be those who want to worship Him by giving our all because He gave His all for us. And let her see, death is only the door to life eternal, but for the Christian, for you, for me, it's going home. It's going home. Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-8, through For I am ready being poured out as a drink offering, now get ready, and the time of my what? Oh, you didn't say it loud enough. The time of my what? Departure has come. That word departure is used four ways in the New Testament that tell us about the death of a believer. He calls it a departure. Why? Because this same word is used to describe the unleashing of an animal from the burden of a cart. This word departure is used to releasing a prisoner from his shackles and chains. This word departure is used of taking down a tent and then setting up a new tent. And this word departure is used to describe a ship that's leaving its harbor to a new harbor. And that is an awesome, awesome picture of what happens when you're saved, family and friends, or yourself die. Christ, number one, followers, you who love Him, you who are born again, are freed now when you die from the burdens of life on this fallen planet. How many of you, don't raise your hand, are burdened by this life? Absolutely. And the promise of Scripture is you are unburdened. I one time went backpacking. First time I went backpacking, my, my father put a 40-pound back. I think I was nine years old. I must have been three. I felt like it. 40-pound pack. The guy's nuts. He, he wore 100 pounds. When I was done with my backpack, I threw that pack off, and I actually flittered around. I felt like a butterfly. It was like this incredible burden had been lifted off of me. You ever had that happen? You're like, oh my goodness, I feel so different. That this life weighs us with burdens. And the moment, like a being unleashed, an animal from a cart, the moment you get to heaven, you're released of that burden. Secondly, believers will be delivered from the shackles of their flesh and the chains of their sins forever. Dead Christians have been completely, totally set free like a released prisoner. Are you looking forward to being sinless? Does that a burden you're ready to shuck? And thirdly, disciples who have died have 
taken down the tent of their physical body awaiting for the new perfect tent in heaven without illness. That perfect tent will have no sickness. It will be having no physical limitation. And then fourthly, believers have in their departure have cast off the ropes of this world and set sail only to arrive in the harbor called heaven face to face with their Lord and Savior and their friend, Jesus Christ. They're finally home. In that sense, it's almost greater than a departure. It's like they've arrived. It's not a departure, it's an arrival. You see, dead believers, you will see them again. For they are not dead. They are more alive than they have ever been. And those without Christ, will, you will never see again. They are separate from Christ, in torment, forever suffering under God's just wrath for their sin. So the thousand dollar question today, are you certain we will see you at home in heaven with Christ? Or will we only think of you in the horror of hell? Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, our desire is to honor you and glorify you by the way we respond to your word we pray now that you would take your word and change our lives, that you would cause us to be more zealous evangelistically, more zealous to serve and to give and to, to, to be those who care for others and more zealous to be living in the Spirit, living for your glory in everything that we do so that those things would count for all eternity. And Father, if there's any here who don't know you, who are not born again, who have a hard heart, would you please break their heart? Would you crack in? Only you can to awaken them to the necessary reality that they would turn in submission to you, they would trust in your work on the cross on their behalf, they would exchange all that they are for all that you are, they would put their life in your hands and allow you to cover them in your righteousness, nothing that they did on their own, transform their hearts so they would want to serve you and honor you their whole lives. We want to worship you that way. We want our lives to be different because of today for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.